21st of March 2017. Joining me as usual, Dan uh, Dan Miller, myself, Dave Scotland, and a very regular, which is always great to have, uh, Tom McGill on board. Hello, hello. How are we, gentlemen? Well met. Very good. Um, we're going to dive straight in with a show that we've been trying to get off the ground for a couple of weeks, and uh, we've run into some, some schedule is- issues, some, uh, some technical issues, uh, but hopefully tonight uh, we're going to be fine. Um, thanks to Windows updates, we we had a few hurdles there. Never update Windows. <laughs> Just it's a simple rule, and I have actually the broadcast machine that we use. I've literally switched off Windows updates because yeah. uh, they just they're defaulted they to don't help automatic. Yeah. yeah, and. Um, um, but having said that, I've now just told everybody to come and hack my machine. <laughs> we don't want to do that. Um, so tonight we're going to have a look at um, a unique perspective on visual effects. And we're going to have a look. We're going to start out um, first with Dan. Uh, you've got some uh, predictions that were made in 2002 or four? Four. 2004. And these were predictions... Get rid of that echo. Um, these are predictions in relation to what the um, the upcoming uh, innovations in the field of visual effects, um, what they are most likely to be. And um, I've, I'm going to be coming from a different perspective where I'm looking at the actual innovations that happened since 2000. Um, and so we'll just come back and forward and see how those lists compare and see whether we had some pipe dreams early on, um, whether we abandoned those things or leapfrog those things um and we've of course uh brought tom along because he's our resident visual effects guru mm-hmm. um and uh he's going to weigh in on some of the things that we're discussing so we're going to try to get it through get through it in one show mm. um but we don't want to rush it and if 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 time doesn't uh, allow we may turn it into a two-parter uh, so that's the premise um so let's how about we switch over to uh you dan and yeah. we'll have a look at our first prediction so really i suppose what we're doing is we're looking at the future from the past which kind of puts us exactly in the present we're going back to the future <laughs> we're going back to the future <laughs> i've got the wrong model <coughs> hang on hang on uh, we can fix that <laughs> perfect there now we're go. going back to the future now we've got a theme going on it Whoa. Oh. Safely it, it, it survived <laughs> R2, see what you can do with it. (laughs) 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 All right. After that near disaster. um, Okay. So what I've got here is an article um, called 12 Predictions on the Future of Visual Effects. 
And the interesting thing, of course, is that it was writ in 2004. Um, and it's by Kim Liberi. Is that how you pronounce that? It, it, Tom's more worldly and European than us. Uh, well, if it's Italian, it's Liberi. Yeah, I would say that. There you go. Liberi. Liberi. You've got to use your hands. You got And you've got to roll that <laughs> eye, haven't yeah, you? Yeah, Liberi. All right. So I thought we'd just chuck, uh, chuck up some uh, IMDb stuff just quickly, just to get a perspective of who we're, um, who the predictions are coming from. So uh, Kim, as you can probably see here, has quite... Um, Quite an extensive um, bunch of stuff that he's worked on. So there's a whole bunch of stuff back in the um, back in the day, including Lawnmower Man Two. How about that? Ah, I never knew. <laughs> I never knew there was a two. I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't either. I mean, Lawnmower, Lawnmower Man One was um, was a bit of a groundbreaker. It had some some interesting graphic uh, graphic stuff going on. I'm sure if we went back and looked at it today, we'd be a little bit. Uh, yeah, you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit, yeah. Pierce Brosnan, I believe, was in it. Was yes. he with Pierce Brosnan? Yeah. Uh, Space Jam. I think you might remember Space Jam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, Event Horizon. Uh, Dreams May Come. That's some pretty spectacular sort of a stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, um, all of the Matrixes. Okay. Yep. So he did all of them. So he was on our fair shore at one point. Yeah, yeah. And... Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of stuff here. You can see War of the Worlds. The, well, he was an ILM uh, visual effects soup. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jupiter Ascending, Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Look, that's an interesting um, moniker. Technology supervisor for mm. on, on Force Awakening. So yeah. one would suggest he's a pipeline guru. Well, it's gone through that. There's a few older films as well where he's listed as technology supervisor. Mm-hmm. Well, we're starting to think a, a little bit about um, sort of career pathways and stuff. If you go right back down to the bottom here, mm-hmm. <laughs> the Muppet Christmas Carol, software engineer. So he's a boffin. Software, software engineer, software engineer. He's an absolute boffin. He comes. Tec- he, you would have to say he comes to the game from a from a technical perspective first. Yeah, mm-hmm. would you? Mm-hmm. I would yeah. suggest he's probably Tells done the tech oh. consultant, tech supervisor. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely, definitely. Yep. Okay, so that's it. Um, so, um, so he's qualified. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. So um, the first one that we've got here uh, is his. So we, he's going to have twelve predictions, which is a good number for predictions, I think. Um, we will build a better virtual human. Now, does he say? when he expects those 12 predictions to come through? Does no. Say, this is stuff that we'll see in the next 10 years? Or? Uh, no, I don't think he, he does much of that. Um, I like this summary. He looks at the current trends and projects the future paths of VFX industry. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't think I saw much of a um, yeah time sort of thing. He's just sort of thinking about what will happen in the future. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, can I ask maybe, Dave, we swap over to you if you've got something else. I've just got a messy document in the background here yep, that's cool. got all of the, the stuff. So mm-hmm. we'll build a better human. Um, so with Pixar Incredibles, Pixar provided a heavily animated stylized approach to superheroes. In complete contrast to Sony Pictures Image Works, uh, de- they deployed very techno- technological motion capture approach to creating their near photorealistic humans for the Polar Express. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he mentions that subsurface scattering. So he says, now that we have subsurface scattering, 
Um, so the first thing I want to stick in your mind is Polar Express. Yeah. Um, Which is quite literally the example you use when trying to explain what not uncanny to do. Valley. <laughs> yeah, the uncanny, the uncanny valley. valley. Yeah. So I thought that would uh, yeah pique your interest there. I mean, do you want to maybe just if you could just Google up um, some Polar Express stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just go on to his kind of prediction here. What is needed is a system that allows an animator to drive anim- a human skeletal, uh, the a human skeletal, skeletal in a very gesture posed based way. I don't think that makes too much sense to be honest. Um, and let the computer fill in all the nuances of joint offsets and non-linearity. That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. So what he's saying is that um, some better way to do animation systems. So uh, this is motion capture, right? They use yes. motion motion capture. On uh, absolutely, this. yes. So, yep. so I'm not exactly 100% sure what he's saying. But, um, yeah, I think the faces were pretty wooden in the Polar Express. Yeah, commonly known as some of the deadest eyes um, in cinema history for animated characters. And what like I was just, just lifeless dead eyes. Um, the trivial point for this is Tom Cruise. Uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Hanks played every character. Every major uh, character. No, every character. Yeah, yeah, every character. Even little even kids. little kids. Oh, did he? Like some did he? some of the kids. He played the conductor. He played Santa Claus. I he, know he played more than one character. Yeah. Yeah, Oops. a whole bunch of the characters. Yeah. Hmm. Um, so he's saying that's going to improve. Um, he talked about subsurface scattering. Um, he's talking a lot about skeleton and muscle structures. Um, improvements there. Mm-hmm. Um, so then the next one that he says, and this is the the sort of end of his prediction, I suppose, is um, he's talking about the burly brawl. Ah, uh, yes, the famous burly brawl from the Matrix, or one of them. Um, so we created simulated. We created simulated human form. I think the English is a bit English in some of this. To be honest with you, we created hu- simulated human form for the burly brawl scenes in the second and third Matrix movies. But the process we went through was extremely complex and time-consuming. This will become much easier as animation systems evolve um, into the future. So. It seems um, that's kind of what he's talking about, um, building a better, better human. So, and a lot of it seems to be focused around animation. Um, perhaps he's fo- focusing on um, facial animation as well. Uh, but well, he does mention subsurface scattering. So, let that, me there's um, the prediction. Let me chime in here. He's saying that the um, the animation process will become a lot easier um, for facial animation and things like that. Um, so we can we can have a look at potentially where we where we did actually go uh, in that time since that prediction, and he's absolutely correct. Um, we did become a lot better at um, at animating characters, and you can see here on screen I've got Tom Hanks uh, playing or being captured mm-hmm. for a bunch of the performance. But you will notice in that scene there. He was uh, devoid of any face markers. And then when we start to get uh, a little bit further into um, the last, uh, the the, the 2000s, um, we started to get really good at facial animation through through the work of Andy Serkis, 
um, through the work of uh, Weta, through the work of Zemeckis and Co, who who is trying to crack the Uncanny Valley single handedly, um, giving us all sorts of films um, that make us slightly uncomfortable, like Beowulf and and things like that. But we have become very very good at capturing facial. Uh, and uh, animation or face, facial capture to drive animation and I've got some examples that I'll show you in, in, in a little while um, we've become so good at it we can we can do it in real time now hmm. and we can do it without facial markers yes so I was just sort of thinking there you know the number of dots on people's faces has, has def- definitely increased yep but uh, yeah can we yeah have we arrived at a place where we don't need to do the, use the dots anymore well, thanks to initiatives like the Disney Labs and um, various other organisations that are literally bringing boffins together to crack these things, mm. um, to try to you know find find the holy grail, mm. um, we've made some huge leaps in the last couple of years. Tom, you've um, you've been sort of a, an observer of this, um, and where can you can you think of where in the timeline of film history where we started to really see? Um, some great inroads into this well, sort of thing. Well, what, what we saw there with The Matrix, and I think that's why it's probably a milestone example, mm-hmm. is that at that point of time, they they were, you know, the, the whole Debevich's light sphere, mm-hmm. where you take uh, and put an actor inside of a, a sort of a rig that has 64 cameras and photograph him from various different angles in order to create a facial map that is evenly lit. Mm. And then you get the actor to actually... Um, do facial expressions and you capture the changes in the blood vessels and all the detailed color changes in the in the face as the expressions changes you know blood gets pushed around your lips go together and then lose some lose a bit of color yeah and that was i think that was in the matrix in that that second matrix movie where that was most uh famously used absolutely and uh and that was a big big Milestone, stepping stone. It's the texturing, getting the textures mm. right. Because beforehand you had your animation, and you might drive procedurally drive a bump map to give you a few few creases in the lips. Mm-hmm. But it is really, um, it's not just animation. The color changes as well during animation, and uh, muscles pull, and and you know bones bones don't move. It's it's the muscles that pull on the bones. So mm. the the musculature needs to move, and then the bone needs to follow. So all this interaction is way, way, way too much for uh, an animator to do themselves. Absolutely. And so when we started photographing that on the actor and then projecting it back onto the 3D model, mm-hmm. that's when it got really good. Mm. And we sort of got two, and that you probably um, there's sort of two areas of of capturing um, this movement data. Um, there's performance capture, which is really more face, and there's motion capture. Uh, which traditionally motion capture started out with both, mm-hmm. uh, but it's moved mm-hmm. apart a little bit. And we now we have technologies. Uh, we've got quite a few technologies that are being sort of juggled at the moment to try to find out which one is the best direction to take with facial. Um, and motion, uh, full body motion capture has become just really streamlined to the point, and, and I'll show you this a little bit later as well, to the point where we get real-time feedback Um the a recent thing in motion capture that we've spoken about recently is that there was real-time game engine driven animation or mm-hmm. capture being driven into the um, on-set monitors and in-camera data so that the director while they were shooting Rogue One they were able to see KSO2 
Mm-hmm. Yep, they mm-hmm. were able to see KSO2 in the actual shot, mm. which was being generated in real time by a game engine. Mm. And so that capture process, and, and also being captured by the actor that's in the suit. Um, so yeah, capture, absolutely. That prediction is bang on, that, that we are going to get much, much better at feeding that data into that animation process. Um, yeah, all right. Um, I'll give you another one that he's got here as well, which might just sort of complete this little section. He says, now that we have subsurface scattering, me- uh, measured uh, skin and material shaders, model uh, real-world sampled lights and sophisticated hairstyling and render sips, I am absolutely convinced that we can render totally photorealistic still renditions of digital doubles that are indistinguishable from the real actor. It when it's when things start to move that problems appear. Yeah, and this is and that. that's the uncanny valley that we were <clears throat> that we were talking about. That um, the ability to render. Um, so we've got a graph on the on the screen at the moment where we basically, as we start to try to replicate a human, um, the believability we get to a point where we get very close. Mm. And instead of going up in a, in a graph that gets close to the perfect 3D character um, human likeness, um, we get to this point and then it drops like a lead balloon down into this valley of creepiness um, where you are uneasy mm. by these characters. And then you come out the other side, which is what we're yet to... We, we have come out the other side. Mm. I, I'm convinced that... Well, well, would, would you agree, Tom, that we've come out the other side of the valley, but we haven't come out... And made it all the way back to where we where we dropped. Because everything we see that's really good is an ape or an alien. Mm. And uh, when we get to see when somebody's really ballsy and puts us put a puts a familiar mm. human in front of us, a moth, it's Tarkin. a moth or a princess. Mm. Then we we we're not comfortable with that just yet. Yeah. And that was Alelam. I mean, they're the best. Amongst the best people in the I business. I think we're definitely out of the uncanny valley. We're climbing we're just out. Still, we're climbing out. I don't mm. think we we can reliably do an a thing that's indistinguishable from an actual human. Mm. Perhaps people who are not so familiar with, um, you know, graphics and rendering and that sort of stuff, they might be more easily convinced. Yes. In fact, like I know children. Children didn't have a problem with no. Princess Leia or Tarkin. No. Right, but. Adults, we've we've spent our whole life staring at humans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most children have yeah. spent their whole life staring at Sesame Street, right? So they'll accept all of these weird things, and they won't flag them as being as creepy as what we. I see. think there's also a hyper real vibe that is actually detectable. Mm. Um, and I know I'm not explaining that very well, but do you know what I mean? A hyper real yeah. humanistic three um, D model, textured model of a human face. Mm. Has this kind of, and it's like the over, it's the uncanny valley. It's just gone a little bit too far. Yeah, I think it's the same. It's not in the valley. It's 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 up a bar. Yeah, past. I think it's the same as um, computer graphics used to sort of always traditionally suffer from. Is that the mess and detritus of the randomness of the world is the most difficult thing to capture. The world's all, the world always seems a little bit too neat, a little bit too organised. Even if you're trying to put in crazy mm. stuff in there, and I think that's what. I don't know. I feel you see in those it's sort of hyper real, um, and it's it's a it's a matter of you know how close do you get to it. If you get a close up of a person, mm. it's so much more difficult. And I think it's true. I think you're probably there for a not close up person. Um, so tell me, gentlemen, why 
is it so easy? Well, it's not easy, but it's far more achievable to replicate a human digitally in a still image. Why, well, as he says here, it's just movement, isn't it? So what, are, what about that movement? If we can capture all this stuff and if mm. we can go in and if we can put a million dots on a person's face, we still can't no, there's too much going crack on. it. There's the interaction so between the you bones, just look at, blood vessels, yeah, light, yeah, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Just look there's, at somebody's forehead when you're talking with them or their temples or the, the neck. I mean, mm. everything is, is slightly differently in motion. M- muscles are moving all over the place. And that's, you know, t- gets more and more tackled, all this... There's a, um, there is one theory wow. that I have heard recently, and uh, it has to do with, well, it's, a, it's only a theory, it's hard to, hard to prove, but there are teams of people that are working on this, whether it's a sort of a hobby-based society-type group, mm. uh, like mm. the Human Project and things like that, where, where people are contributing um, extremely high-resolution scans of certain parts of the face and things like that. And as far as um, and then they make it a, make it publicly publicly available, and people can add to try to crack this thing. Um, and there are professional teams that are actually professionally tasked with trying to do this. Zemeckis, you know, he, his name keeps coming up. Mm. He's taken it upon himself to try to single-handedly crack this this code. Some of these boffins that are very very smart, much much smarter than me. Um, have literally said we think there's a soul there there's something that we can't capture with a camera we can't we can't put diodes on a face and capture it but there is something there in a person's eyes that that it, it's it comes from somewhere that we can't quantify the the freaky thing is that it even works in still images so if you see a photo of a dead person mm-hmm you can tell that that person is dead. That their soul is gone. Well, you can, you, people used to do that. They used to have, you know, their dead children in the in a family photo. They did too. And it's very common. And uh, even nowadays, there's cultures where the dead stay in the house. They don't get buried, and you 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 have them with you for for years. And uh, and uh, I just uh, you know once read a National Geographic article, and you could see there, you know, there's a family. There's a little child, the six year old girl that has died, and its sisters and siblings. Uh, lying around her, you know, um, cuddling her. <laughs> but you look at the photo and you can tell that is, you know, point out the one person who's dead and you can tell. Yeah. And it's a still photograph. Yeah. I think from the movement and animation perspective, I think it's just a um, <clears throat> an accumulative effect of everything being at 99%. So you've got... 20 things that are at 99 percent that doesn't give you 99 percent at the end it gives you 85 percent at the end because the lighting's a little bit off the hair's slightly off yeah the eyes are slightly off the movement of the face is slightly off and you pick up on all of those little tiny one percents and you can then tell the difference because you think of terminator uh, Mm -hmm. genesis where they did recreate arnold schwarzenegger that's the best example of a CG digital human I've ever seen. And why does he do they get away with it? Because, because he's a robot. Yes, Arnold and he doesn't need <laughs> to move. Well, he's a robot as a human, right? Like yeah. his acting style is robotic and, yeah. and there's not a lot of emotion there's going not much on. There's movement going on. But also he's portraying a robot. You know what I mean? So we're not really, our brain is not accepting that he's a human. He's, he's somebody that's, he's a robot trying to look like a human and that's in there. Does mm. this make sense? Possible. Even that, that still photo there, it's, it looks... It's still, yeah, it doesn't look like that's a real dude there to me. And part of it is the symmetrical um, stare. That one's much better. But I think even 
No, no, that one's very, very close. And, and if I knew it was a 3D this image... One, not so good. Go back... Yeah, no, that one's not so good. Go <laughs> back to that one. I think <clears throat> that one's definitely the best, but it's still got that hyper-real quality that I was trying to describe, mm -hmm. that hyper-real perfection. And it's even the floors are perfect. Yep. You know, and it's yep. a, that's that last little one percent that's that difficult most difficult bit to there, there's a to nail you know you know paul walker <clears throat> died halfway through the fast and furious 7 yeah. and he had to be replaced or he had to be shots shots had to be done with him in it important mm. shots mm. where he was completely digital and that is so well done that experts mm. cannot like if you watch through mm. the through the movie and you want to you sort of try and pick yeah uh, i think he's digital and because you don't know which one's i only digital. saw one shot and you you can't there was tell. Only one shot out of it's so and, well and done mm. when the uh, but that's because it's far away it's not a close-up and mm. they're short shots it's mm. action shots and when it's not were, long yeah yeah absolutely when they asked um how many shots they actually did of this face replacement they literally they went out and shot his brother his brother volunteered to be the body double for these shots and mm -hmm. then they put paul walker's face from the six other movies that they did with this guy um they were able to take bunches a lot of different performances and a lot of different facial expressions from all of these other films um and then they projected that onto paul walker's brother who had the same physique and, mm -hmm. and, and bone structure and moved the same and that sort of stuff and they asked, um, they were interviewing, I forget who it was, over at Weta, the, I can't remember his name. Um, they asked him, how many shots did you did you actually do? And they were thinking it would be in the tens. It was like 200 shots. Wow. They did 200 shots. Um, that's crazy. Because there was only one that I saw had it, that had a problem. It was where they, you sort of. They pulled up together at the very end of the movie and he looked across and he sort of looked back at him and it just mm. looked terrible. Mm. It was, but every other shot in the film was flawless. Okay then, well, <clears throat> we've actually already leaked into the second prediction um, quite a bit here. So um, <clears throat> we will be able to create believable face facial animation. So uh, we will also learn to do realistic human facial animations this will take a lot of work the human face is immensely complicated has many moving features uh, and it's not easily uh, easy for the computer to replicate um <clears throat> so the the quote that i think i wanted to take away from it though is i thought that ilm did a good job on the hulk image works deployed an industry interesting mocap solution for the polar express and so when he's talking about the hulk he would be talking about the first hulk the first Hulk with um, that looks a little with dry. the Aussie Angley one with the Aussie yeah yeah Angley. yeah yeah which I think looks a little uh, dated and dry and yeah. uh, doesn't stand up yeah. to our modern Marvel movies I don't think for example they had that Hulk somewhere. has got subsurface scattering on the the model I think is one of the big yeah. I would suggest yep yeah yeah uh, it looks he like a dry computer something in the order of twenty texture maps on the yeah he actually I remember but that, yeah. um. You know, it's a green, it's green skinned, it is not human proportioned, mm. and immediately you can get away with a lot of things. Yep. But the capture performance was Brilliant. was was quite good. Yeah. Mm. So, believable facial animation. Um, have you got here the uh, real-time facial capture, capture reenactment? Is that what you're looking at here? Um, yeah, we're looking at some stuff from Disney. This is, this is real-time capture without markers. Okay. 
Um, so basically, you're, what you're seeing here is real-time capture, not only um, um, wallets. First of all, the the, mod, the mesh is captured um, photographically, but uh, and then the faces used the performance on the faces used to drive the animation back onto the original mesh that was created from the photographic capture mm -hmm. uh, using photogrammetry. Um, which has come a long way in the last couple of years. And a lot of people are using very simple 3D cameras that can be found on laptops, yeah. um, on um, PlayStations, to do this exact thing. And they're using very low-tech sol um, hardware solutions to do what is really crazy uh, uh, stuff at the moment. So we've seen a big leap forward in the last two years in relation to real-time capture and then mapping performance from a second person mm -hmm. onto the face of the first person. Can you pull up face-to-face, real-time? Um, I might have that if, in this. If you do a, a search. Real-time real high-fidelity facial performance capture. No, that's not the one that I was looking for. If you just go into the search, I think you'll find it. Face-to-face -face with, with the number two. <clears throat> and this was presented at SIGGRAPH at um, oh there's no spaces in it and these, there it is these the, guys the, here I think that's, oh, that's yeah this, that's them yeah that, that's them that's not necessarily the one I was thinking of but and so this is <clears throat> is this so this is real time editing video um, with facial capture um, no markers or anything. Um, so webcam. yeah. So basically, what we're looking at is um, on a monitor next to. There's a gentleman sitting in a chair, and on a monitor we've got uh, George George W. Yep. And they are literally taking the performance of the guy sitting in the chair and mapping that performance back onto George W's actually actual facial features, which is just a video, which yeah. is a video that is. Being well, they edited. use a they use what's called a um, uh, a hockey mask. Um, geometry. So, mm -hmm. so the camera scans George W, and then they project that scanned face onto this hockey mask, which is able. And the hockey mask is pre-wired, and then the wired part of the hockey mask is driven by the performance from the guy sitting in the seat. And because it's George W's actual face. We don't see the blending marks. We don't see the where it's blended back onto his actual face. And so, therefore, you can, because of this technology, you can no longer trust what you see in a video. You could quite literally have um, somebody that you're very familiar with seeing talking straight down the barrel of a camera at you, and that is not them. That was not what was recorded with the video. Absolutely. With yeah. the video camera. Yep. Um, the other thing that you can now do, of course, with that, or the, the potential thing that you could do with that is um, redub your, your film into Spanish <laughs> because all you need is a Spanish actor. Yeah. And, um, and the interesting thing about it is that if you just dub it, right, so... In English, you might say, and German, you with German would probably be much better to describe this than me, but the emphasis for your sort of voice and your intensity of your voice is based off the order of the things in the in the sentence. Oops. So if you say, you know, 
I am going to the shop in English, but in, in Spanish, if it's the shop I'm going to, mm. yeah. um, you know, the actor who's doing the, the redub can actually put the emphasis where it needs to be yep. in the sentence to get, get a more believable performance to the, to the character. Yeah. 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 Which is very impressive. <clears throat> yeah. You know, that's very impressive, especially with the international market that we have for film nowadays. That said, I don't think that that's going to take off. Why not? I'd be skeptical about that. Just because the, the countries that dub films are so happy. There's very few that actually do it. Mm-hmm. Most of them just happily happily have subtitles. Yeah. And so I don't think that there's much of much of a market out there. I thought look Well <laughs> You might be right. You just so right. happens we're looking at <laughs> this there's a monitor in the background with um, Donald Trump and it says Donald Trump on best and worst presidents and this would have been captured Recently, uh, yeah, no. Course. This video would have been uh, 2016, oh, March the 17th, yeah, yeah, 2016. Okay. All right, the, the bitter irony. Continue, sir. Let's continue on. So, um, prediction number three: we will be able to create synthetic, massive environments. So he nailed. He's nailed the first two. Um, well, is, I think it's more is, that he's laid out the prediction, and we sort of have to decide how far along that path we are. Yes, oh, okay. because this is not okay. what we just talked about with the facial mapping is not creating CG humans. This is t- taking a photographic face that already has all the detail mm. and then just reanimating it. Mm-hmm. Can we do it from scratch? Um, so I think we're quite quite far down that path. We've certainly advanced quite a long way. We've got believable facial animation. I think we've got that. Um, and believable mm. characters. Um, there could be some tweaks on the uncanny, you know, getting past the uncanny valley or going too far and having this hyper real thing that goes a bit too far in the other direction. But we're certainly getting very, very close. We're down to the last percentages. And in fact, um, you know, some computer games are probably now up, real time computer games are probably now up to the Ooh, yeah. Polar Express type. Level of oh, better and, than that, yeah. yeah. There's some crazy stuff. I mean, currently we've got up on the screen Hellblade, and what this is, <clears> what <throat> you're looking at here, this is a presentation that's real time. The actress is on the side of the stage, so this is an audience. There's mm-hmm. an audience of people watching this. She's performing um, off to the side of the stage. Her facial animation is off, kept being captured in real time and being projected onto a character in game, in real time, and it is stunning. To yeah. look at. And lots of dynamics are happening as well, simulation-wise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's particles whizzing around, embers, there's wind. She's got ponytail, long ponytail yep. and very furry clothes. And this, this, is, ga- this is game tech, which yeah. essentially what you're looking at is potentially where we're going as far as playing games. At one point, it would have been it's a wonderful idea to think that you can customise your avatar to play in a game. This is a whole new level. This is this is actually having your face captured in real time mm. um, and projected into the game. So when you do meet people from the other side of the planet in game, mm. they're actually conversing with you. You can see facial expressions. You can see facial expressions. Yeah, yeah. You can yeah. emote. Yeah. yeah, that's pretty crazy. Crazy being able to do that, eh? But you've got to put your makeup on before you can play your game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your special dots. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- yes and no. Well, I mean, we've seen some be. stuff there where we, where we can do dotless or markerless <clears throat> facial uh, capture now. One thing we have to give the Polar Express a bit of leeway is that it is a painted book, and they did try to recreate the uh, the painterly look of mm. the children's book. Yeah, 
So that's maybe the excuse for we didn't get the skin colors right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's the animation that 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 is is the letdown. Not the, the, the they never try to make a realistic looking human. Yeah. Mm. But they try to get the realistic animation and they didn't. Yeah. Mm. All right. If we move on to number three, we have um, um, we'll be able to create synthetic massive environments. So to give you a bit of context, with the Star Wars prequels and more re- recently Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow. Well, it was the big one, wasn't it? And I recently, Robot. that's like fifteen years ago. Yeah, it is. Um, we have seen uh, we have seen scenes that are almost completely shot on a blue screen. This kind of work requires fully synthetic environments um, environments that are very costly um, if they have to be totally photorealistic they call them virtual backlots or digital backlots mm-hmm. which is as you say it's completely virtual and um, and they shoot completely on green or maybe with a little bit of a set set piece in sometimes completely on green mm-hmm. um, but sometimes with some portions of interactivity like uh, maybe some cobblestones if they're you know on a rock or something like that um so we will soon see the software that will create massive environments in a much more automated fashion absolutely and you're right sky captain was the first um the first outing within a complete film shot using digital backlots Mm. it was the the first film that was backed and um, it was taken seriously. They literally created the whole film first um, using stand-ins and lower actors, like so lower paid actors, in order to sell the concept and get people on board like mainstream actors. Like, was it Jude Law? And uh, I think it was, I think it was Jude Law and mm, Angelina. Easy. Was it Angelina Jolie? I think it was Jolie. In her, she was not the main character. It oh, was, no, was, um, was it Jolie? Yeah, Jude Law. From memory, Jude Law, Jolie, and Ribisi, oh, whatever his name Pepper, is. Pepper from Iron Man. What's her name? Married to I know yeah. Coldplay. No, I'm lead singer of Coldplay. What's her name? She's Iron Man's chick. I can't remember. Anyway, <laughs> so confident to get, that I can't to remember. Get them on, confident the internet knows. To get them on board, yeah, they shot the whole thing on green screen. Um, Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow. They shot the whole thing first and then secured all the funding to, and then went back and reshot the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was really Lucas that pioneered the complete green void um, shooting a whole film on literally green screen. Which came with a few um, yeah. a few things where, you know, we were complaining about the digital actors being wooden. You stick all the green screen and blue screen around and then suddenly the real actors become wooden. Absolutely. So, yeah, not out of the woods yet, but um, I, th- I think those lessons are probably being learned, you know, um, yeah, those lessons are definitely being le- learned. So, are we at a stage where um, we are able to create synthetic massive environments efficiently? Yo, That's what are you saying? I think, I, I think, yeah, I think we're very close. In, and and you'd think that well, the the, the, the low hanging fruit is buildings and rock formations, mm. but we can do bloody plants. And mm-hmm. you know, just look at the Jungle Book. Mm-hmm. Look at what we're doing in real time. Mm. Go out and play mm. Witcher. Go out and play one yeah, of the true. Assassin's Creed games. Um, I when I played Assass- the latest Assassin's Creed, which took place in um, in London, mm. man, 
It is stunning, mate. It is the lighting, the the ambient, the <coughs> dust in the air. The um, it's just stunning, and that's real time. Mm-hmm. So what we're talking about is for film. Um, you betcha, we can create these things. And look, I mean, look at Avatar. Oh, just any any car commercial these days. Yeah. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Mm. All right, then, moving right along. Uh, the next one is pipeline tools will become standardised. So I'll read you this little <laughs> quote he's got here. At the moment, the larger facilities have invested hun- hundreds of person years in developing their own in-house pipeline tools. This is an uneconomical and totally unrealistic is for smaller shops. I expect to see off-the-shelf applications for things like tape backup, and data migration. I'm not sure what tape backup is, to be honest with you. Tape backups are still done on tape these days. Are they? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, or things like managing large scenes with packages like Maya, Mental Ray, or Renderban. I also, uh, as I mentioned above, I also expect to see standard tools for creating virtual humans, as well as things like synthetic city large-scale environments, uh, environment creation software. Do we have something off the shelf that you can buy to create awesome-looking humans and awesome-looking buildings and stuff? Sorry, humans and buildings are talking pipeline management here? Well, I think he's going a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. Um, But he he mainly seems to be talking about the tools that make those things. If if you're talking off the shelf, no. Or standardized There's very even, few pipeline no. tools off the shelf as it is. That like, there's plenty of stuff for boutique-sized studios, small studios, startups, mm-hmm. things like that. But any of the big houses, man, they write their own tools. They, yep. they, everything's proprietized, uh, proprietary, and it's it's they'll take a little bit of that and a little bit of this, and then they'll bring in a bit of code and I mean customize it to their own. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, and, and write a lot of stuff there. So I don't think so. I think he underestimated when he made that prediction. He underestimated the human um, factors. Uh, in relation to business, you know, and wanting to, it's cutthroat. It's competitive, and in order for that to happen, to you, to for the, for that to be unified, you've got to remove all the competition. Like you've got to have a product that's so good that everyone else just falls away, or the one company buys everyone, which is sort of close. You know, we almost got there, but um, you will. All, there will always be somebody else coming up with something to, and the premise of coming up with something is to build that company up. Uh, and they might sell it over here, and then there's someone else that'll pop up. So I just don't think the human nature thing is going to allow one unified solution. I'm kind of looking at it from bottom up and sort of saying that um, larger companies take tools off the shelf and add extra bits to it. Right? Well, the the, the, the off-the-shelf tools evolve with the new innovations that get done by larger companies. It's a bit of both, you know. They kind of go around. That's true. They kind of go around, and they one feeds the other. Yeah. So you wouldn't recognise a copy of Maya at some places, yeah, uh, because it's just so heavily plugged in into their their pipeline. And this. I mean, suppose what I'm trying to say yes. from that loop, yeah. a little a little tool pops out that mm. goes on the shelf, yeah, for every everybody to use. Well, but then the game increases, and there's another little loop with yeah. a higher bunch of technology and a higher bunch of workflows and stuff. Yeah. But a little tool pops out of that that arrives on people's shelf somewhere. I think you, you're almost you're almost there. You, it, Autodesk is a great one to look at because. <clears throat> They now and then come up with some really cool shit, mm. but most of the time they don't. Most of the time they buy it, mm. and they buy it 
they'll buy the whole team. Look at the fluid simulation process that went into Bifrost, which is the the new fluid animation or simulation um, system built into Maya. So you can get that off the shelf. They only got that because they bought that the Niad or Niad um, system and the forty boffins that built it. Yep. They bought the whole lot, <clears throat> and I think these bigger companies tend to do that. They they know that. Um, no one's going to give Autodesk money to develop something. Mm. Whereas startups, they're going to get money. They're going to get startup money. They get capital funding. There's a whole bunch of things. And they and can I, take the risk of coming up with something crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's the model now. I mm. think um, the the big players are really all about the bringing it all together. That's where they're good. They're, mm. they're, they're really building the pipeline tool that you're talking about, that you're erring towards. But they rely so heavily on the little tiny satellite players. Does that... Am I making sense? Does that make sense? I think when he says um, pipeline tools will become standardised, yeah, I don't know. Maybe he's uh, not thinking enough about you know the endless, boundless space for innovation. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. and and he's that's such an IT mentality because of having worked in IT a little bit, I know that the golden, the holy grail that you shoot for is standardisation. If you can. If you can standardise your, your desktop build, mm. then servicing it, um, having it run to its optimum is far more likely and you can drive the product to a, a really efficient system mm. because you've got standardisation across the board. As soon as you've got one department that want to bring in Macs, Apple Macs, and another department want to bring in their own database, whatever, mm. we start to get that non-standardisation therefore you have to have multiple layers of servicing and all this sort of stuff. So it's a very IT thing to, it's a wishful thing for an IT person person to do is to go standardise across the board <laughs> and it makes a lot of sense but the problem is there's humans involved mm-hmm. yes, and, and IT people don't think about humans as much as they should <laughs> just generally as a general rule just if you just look at video standards or codecs how many are there around <laughs> yeah, and each company has their own frame rate yeah. and, and they all think if they're doing you want better to, than you want to market else. a movie to all, all countries and wouldn't it be great if everyone used the same standards mm. but then you know there's someone in France who says well I'm going to do this standard and then there's somebody else in China who says well yep. my standard is this one yep. and uh, and uh, we we're far away from from And I, d- I, d- I think we're moving further away than where we were say because 20 years ago. There's more and more and more to choose from. More space to yeah investigate and therefore more you know little tiny standards sort of pop up. Yep. Um, okay so let's say yeah you probably didn't get that one too accurate. Yep. Um, it's still as messy as it was back then I, I imagine and you know the future doesn't look any brighter, shall we say? But that's not not necessarily a bad thing. It's that's just the chaos of innovation. Um, okay, next. Advances in digital visual effects animation will mean far less physical effects work. So the little blurb. As our understanding of the physics of explosions or waves or things like car crashes grow. We will, we will rely less on crashing real cars or blowing up buildings initially. Uh, this will create imagery that we have never seen before. But ultimately, once the technology becomes commonplace, the result will be production cost savings and smaller companies and independent filmmakers will have access to much more complex v- VFX than they have had to date. So in one short saying, more explosions, bigger explosions. At the same cost and same effort. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is by, what we by going which digital. is exactly what we're seeing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the the want to go bigger increases the risk as well. So we we don't want to put humans in, and the fact that we're you know we've got armies of lawyers that want to sue everyone as well. We can't put humans in in harm's way. 
Um, <clears throat> so that has driven it as well, mm-hmm. dri- driven the need to do our explosions and our pyro and setting people on fire is a sort of thing of the past. <laughs> yeah. Um, we were talking about it today, actually, the, the, the sort of partition between it's trying to define what visual effects is today mm-hmm. um, because visual effects comes from a place of optics, of, of visual. Um, there was physical effects or what we call special effects, which is prosthetics, uh, pyro, mm-hmm. blowing things up, um, destroying flipping cars, all that sort of stuff. Um, and visual effects was more compositing. So it was optical printers and um, green screen, uh, blue screen, Painting, it's the compositing painting of on the glass. Yeah, it was compositing of the of of the actual of the practical effect. of the practical. Yeah, 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 true. Yeah, and unfortunately, it for well, unfortunately for me, it, it feels like visual effects is being used to describe two things that we as artists, digital artists, now do in our day to day world. One is we are creating practical effects digitally, mm-hmm. and therefore have brought them into the umbrella of visual effects yeah because yeah. that's the pigeonhole that they could fit in mm-hmm. rather than call them digital digital special effects <laughs> which is what they should be mm. when you create pyro water wind dust fire when you create stuff in the computer to be used in a um a visual composition that is still to me physical but it's digitally made mm-hmm. do you know what i mean yeah yeah um whereas visual effects um really should still stay in the realm of compositing so mm. it's about green screen it's about chroma key it's about um color grading it's it's that sort of stuff unfortunately visual effects is now sort of lifted to a higher umbrella mm-hmm. that is covering the both and now and the problem is it causes so much confusion for, for students and stuff like that because they're trying to work out well i want to be a visual effects artist well I don't know how to tell you. You're using There's really no such thing as a visual terminology from decades ago on modern systems, and yeah. it's probably maybe just a, yeah. a, at the time to revise the terminology and not yeah. and, and and not use visual effects if it's too confusing and just call it something else. Yeah, there are people that work on particle simulations, digital particle simulations that never go near nuke. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Does that make? Are they still a visual effects artist? Or are yes, they, it's it's artificially. I, I, I would say they are. A, they're actually a visual effects artist, and yes. and well, no, they're a, they're more of a practical visual effects artist um, or special effects artist. Sorry, digital special effects artist, and the compositors are the visual effects artists in the traditional term. But it's really quite confusing. And then when you try to explain it, you can't explain it in one sentence. You have to go into this long-winded thing with the, the history, and it used to be called this, and now it's this, and now it's yeah, this umbrella, yeah. and you're somewhere in here. Yeah. Look, we'll, we'll sit down, the two of us, we'll nut it out, we have our, our opinions, we'll sort of come to a conclusion in the middle, yeah. and once we have it, we'll present it to the Visual Effects Society. We'll post it Look, there the, you go, this is yeah. the solution, we've we got worked it. this out. Just yep. put our name on it. Yep. It's like demoting Pluto to not be a planet anymore. It's like we've decided. Yeah. So when someone says to me, I'm a visual effects artist, Hmm. I don't really know what you do. Does that make sense? No, it's too general. I don't know what you do. Yeah. Okay, I I think, you know, you could have um, practical effects, which is just not visual effects. And visual effects is everything else. But bringing it back to the explosions that are getting bigger and better and cheaper at the same time, the one thing that stays constant throughout all the years is the render times never change. Yeah, you're right. It's always... You know, 10 hours a frame if you want to be really high quality. Yep. It's 
it's like airplane fare. It's true. Airplane, airplane Somebody should graph that. Prices. It's like the yeah. the the, the compute the, the speed change. of CPUs. Well, it's like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like that. Will it, will that we change? Get, that's we a get good smarter prediction. and faster computers, but then we up the ante. We keep upping the. That's exactly. You know, we, that's and that. now we get four K. Yeah. Right. So, so we that. could never chase. We're chasing the tail. Yeah. And when you get VR thrown into the mix, yes. suddenly render times will just oh. be left behind. Holy It'll be shit. like weeks. I don't know how we're going to cope. I honestly it. don't know how we're going to cope with <laughs> VR. Like when you do the raw numbers, it's an interesting when, balance. When you want a ten eighty, just a ten eighty, mm. right? If you just want a ten eighty window, so that when you're looking straight ahead, you're getting a ten eighty here. The resolution for the three sixty stitch is unbelievable. Mm. And to work in in a pipeline with that, it's I, I don't envy them. I don't ever want to have anything to do with it. Like it's just it would drive me nuts. Not practical. Big numbers. Which will lead us nicely into our topic number six, which means we're halfway through. Mm-hmm. Um, topic number six: offsite rendering will be the norm. So the blurb. At the peak of the matrix work, we were running two thousand five hundred CPUs. They were rendering on. I expect to see a strong trend towards off-site rendering so that VFX and post houses will concentrate much more on the artistry of their work and will outsource the heavy computational work mm. somewhere else. Certainly more, it's certainly more common these days that there's um, online render farms that you can utilize. And they certainly exist. And even, yeah. even, even Pixar are offering their own servers available mm. to people to use. What have you found? What have you found in this? We've all brushed up against it. What have, what have you found in your travels when it comes to off-site rendering? Well, we certainly investigated making use of it. Why didn't we go with it? Did, can you remember? Um, expense and you've got to have a good internet connection to start sending and receiving the data that you're processing. And when it comes to expense, what was the... Um, I can't remember any figures or anything, but if you want 2,500 CPUs worth, mm. well, you've got to pay somebody. And... But one of the advantages is that you don't have to do IT support for all of those. So if there's a Windows update and it all screws up or something or other, it's not your problem. Not your yeah. problem. Um, it it sort of is your problem. Well, here's the deal. Um, it's when, not you, your when you send to solve, a job, yeah, just, but when you send a job, here's the thing: um, rendering is actually part of the creation pipeline. It's not you don't create to a point and then give it to the courier to take it to the client. Job right? done. So there's going to be back and forth is what you're saying. Yes, and yeah, that's yeah. where the price goes stupid, right? And it, it only works for me as a client when it's so cheap it's a throwaway commodity. It might have a negative impact if you're going to go down that route on the quality of your shot because if you're like got one tiny thing wrong with the render mm-hmm. and it's going to cost you a lot of money to... Resend because it to resend it, maybe you might be tempted to say... Meh. Or, or yeah. paint it out or go, you know, take bring it back into the process and stuff. Add a lens flare on, yeah. on yeah, the yeah. top. Driven no, by dollars. That's right. <laughs> and that, that's exactly what happens. I mean, you have usually a dedicated team or sometimes even just one person who does that render wrangling. Yep. And that person, the, the beauty of working on, you know, say a, a film that has 800 visual effects shots is that they're all the same in terms of the pipeline steps that they have to go through. Hmm. So as long as he knows that all the textures are in the right place, all the, the displacement maps are hooked up, and all the files are properly exported. You know, you figure that out in your first few shots. And from then on, it's just a matter of submitting it to the farm and get, receiving the, the, mm. the results. The, the, the drawback comes that 
a lot of, especially in movies, a lot of um, stuff is rendered, a lot of detail is rendered with displacement maps, mm. which you never see as an animator. You never see uh, the the final look of anything on any test render until you get the full res render back. And uh, if then there's glitches in the rendering or if the displacement map suddenly brings out a little stub on the shoulder pad that now goes into the cheek of the character, you don't actually, you never saw that as the animator. Mm -hmm. And so there are rendering mm -hmm. errors that don't yep. pop up until it's too late. Yep. And then going back in the pipeline and getting sending it back into the animation department uh, is usually, is often the case that, that you'll just let compositors sort yep. of fi figure it out at their end. A lot of stuff sadly, gets gets left to the compositing department at the very end to fix. I've always felt that rendering is no different to um, a stylus, uh, like a pen, uh, a Wacom. Mm -hmm. um, it's part of your tool set mm -hmm. to create the shot that you've been assigned to create. And the render farm sort of takes that out of your hand and you then have to entrust somebody else to troubleshoot it, somebody else to make... Uh, I don't have the luxury to do... Um, a hundred frame render at half res and whatever without paying for it and when I've got to pay for it um, as an ongoing thing and I've got 50 other artists that are also paying for their 10, 10 frame renders and things like that um, it's no longer part of your tool set that is a throwaway commodity and that has to affect the end product cost is now starting to affect that end product so if you're just going to send your job off to acme.renderfarms.com mm. fire and forget that's po probably not the way to go but yeah. if you're going to um, part of the the process of producing the the film is going to be to hire a studio who you're going to work closely with mm. as like a department except it's another company then perhaps you've got something a bit more viable i think arcviz they could really use it there are certain sectors of yeah, our yeah. world a more away forgiving. from film mm. that is that mm. they would love it mm. you know because arcviz don't have the 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 creative technical sort of mindset that we that we do in visual effects in film um i think they would love it and i've got a feeling they're probably going to take that market companies usually have their own in-house render farm but yeah. where the uh, the online ones come into place is then when the brunt work comes and uh, a lot of shots have to be finished before the you know the Christmas release, by which point the production is well underway, mm -hmm. and a lot of um, hurdles are, are, are nutted out. And so. if, as Dan, you said, if there's something that really goes bad and you can't afford to send it back into the online farm, you always have your own render farm to fall mm -hmm. back onto. It just takes a little bit longer. So I don't suppose we're seeing much. Um, I expect expect to see a strong trend towards offsite rendering, and I don't know if that's becoming obviously true. I think from a 2004 perspective it has because back in 2004 it wasn't very common and didn't exist at all yeah okay it's definitely a thing so oh yeah if you want to say yeah but not everybody's doing it and not everybody i don't think would be um choosing um off-site rendering as their first choice for yeah. that solution mm. yeah cool all right, so the next one. Now, the next one was just a little bit um, tricky for me because a little bit more out of my depth than usual. Um, so here we are. GPU power will change the post-production pipeline. Um, so I think, yeah, th this might be true. Anyway, he says, this is an easy predict prediction because it already started to happen. We will see an increased use of GPU with shaded te technology to accelerate computation. Um, basically, the GPU will become much more important part of the hardware. Um, blah, 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 blah. 
Yep. So. No, I think he nailed it. He's right. GPUs, like GPU tech, um, like CUDA cores, um, um, the the need for real-time games. Really, it's games that are driving the GPU mm. space uh, in a big way. I've always been a bit um, in the dark about the, you know, sort of role of video card versus GPU. Mm. Um, We're in the CPU. big houses. Hey? Versus CPU. Versus CPU, yeah. Well, the big houses... Um, Am I right in thinking, Tom, that some of the big houses you don't have a you don't have a desktop machine? You literally have a, a, a couple of monitors that plug into a wall socket, and all the computing gets done over there. And so there are big banks and and raids and and all the processing and GPU and everything is over there. Uh-huh. And you're just a um, it's just a dumb terminal it's that you're terminal. sitting at. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You're, you're jacked into this central computing hub, um, and like I've never been privy to that. No, the, that the ones size of, of uh, environment. that I do know is that you still have a PC that has its onboard graphic card and everything, and all the the, the computational stuff gets done on the on the machine that's under your desk. Mm-hmm. But no, there's no storage on there. There's yeah. no USB drives. There's nothing to access the machine other yeah. than the power button. Yeah, and so all the work, all the all the all the um, the, the storage is entirely on uh, on the cloud somewhere or on the, on the network. Nothing's Absolutely. on the computer. But the the CPU and GPU are still there's still a graphics card in there. That mm. that that that's the ones I, that I know. I can tell you firsthand um, when you're pushing 4K footage around and you want to cut it and edit it and play with uh, real time playback, scrub on the timeline, those sorts of things. If you're not using GPU to do that, forget about it, mate. Like it's it's sit and wait, move, sit and wait, move, sit and wait. Yep. Um, it's left CPU. For dead mm. in relate because it's purely driven for graphics. Mm. It's purely driven for the need to show uh, pixel data um, and to calculate pixel like shadow, anti-alias, all that sort of stuff. It's driven for that. It's not not like a CPU which is driven in for um, slightly different. It's, there's a different mentality in, in what a CPU does relative mm. to a GPU, mm. and it just leaves it for dead. There's mm. no comparison. Between those two things, yeah. All right, I'm a bit in the dark. I've never sort of wondered what is it, what is the the thing inside the rusty innards of those PCs that makes it work um, too much. So, do you think that um, yeah, that he's got it there? Yeah, I think so. GPUs, yeah, um, taken over, I suppose, from CPUs. You can tell because it's a talking point when you're listening to um, interviews with somebody that's interviewing the uh, tech pipeline guy from Pixar or from ILM, GPU comes up. Like, mm-hmm. like what's happening in this, the world of GPUs is actually quite important. Mm. Um, and, the, you know, getting away from that non-linear way of doing things and having everything available to you in real time. And um, If it wasn't a thing, we mm. wouldn't be talking... They wouldn't be talking about it. We might be because we're still stuck in game world as well the the prosumer is still driven in that game that's what's feeding us the tech mm-hmm. when we go and buy a, a gdx mm. um 980 or 10 1080 or something realistically it's the game market that's been driving that, that. must be driving not like the it. quadros and the pro cards yeah. and stuff like that nowadays you're better off getting a, you know a couple of inline 1080s and leave the, the quadros for the big big place because no one can afford the fucking things anyway um but the very fact that they're still concerning themselves with it, that it's still on their radar, that would indicate to me that it's 
that he's on the money that it's it's still very much a part of the equation cool which leads nicely into our next one prediction number eight movie slash game uh conversion will become common over the next five years sharing assets with game developers will happen more and more this exchange will happen both ways for example as vfx technologies advance and computational power increases game developers will use more film style vfx then he goes on to talk about and this is interesting this will allow more data exchange with the movies similarly we used a game technology called havoc as a rigid body dynamic solver in the matrix sequels um, this allowed us to use a digital stunt double for practically uh, for practical nasty knocks so i think that was when a when a neo flies across the screen they were using havoc and a rigid mm. body solver to uh do the collisions yeah so I Ragdoll. think it was Ragdoll. No, I, he says a rigid body solver. R- R- so Ragdoll's I, rigid, like it's just got joints. Well, okay, I rigid as opposed to cloth. Cloth is is not rigid. Am I right in thinking that's right? It could be a collection. I would, I would consider Ragdoll as a rigid body. Yeah, no. I, was interpre- rigid. I was interpreting that you'd put a collision mesh, which is just a box over. Neo throw him off to the far side of the screen and that bounces around. Well, and but you mean like he then you have the animator just wave his arms oh, about oh, as okay. he cla- yeah, yeah. clunks into a wall. Because yeah. I know that like uh, uh, a ragdoll is rigid. Any any it's any bunch it's of boxes only the joints that you together. Yeah, 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 yeah. These, these are solid yeah. cylinders. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. true. Yeah, that's no, all you're a ragdoll. Right. You're right. Um, well, just think of uh, what we spoke earlier about uh, the Rogue One, the robot. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, rendered, a, that's a prime example, yeah. And you've got um, organisations like ILMX Labs um, who are directly working with um, game technology, um, doing real-time simulation. Some of the stormtroopers in the background of some of these films were actually created using game tech. That's right. Game, game engine. Uh, so I'll just conclude. One day we may even see the see truly integrated parallel development of games and movies. Uh, he said over the next five years, but we're a bit past five years. Um, what do you guys reckon? Well, really, um, it's only been in the last two or three that we've seen game and film start to share tech like this. Mm. Um, and I thought it was always going to go the other way. I always thought the game world was going to start borrowing from the uh, the film boffins, but it's not. It's mm. back the other way. Both ways. Well, it's, I think it's probably now the other way. Games, yes. games took takes on more and more. Start yeah. using ambient occlusion and speculative blooms and displacement maps. And they yeah. had to do real time, so they had to catch up. They, they have probably to wait for the hardware to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Well, those shitty early games where they were all pre-recorded videos. You know, those mm. choose your own adventure type uh, team Bondi. What was that? What, what was the team Bondi? Oh, the LA Noir. LA Noir, <laughs> and that was all movies and stuff. So they were probably borrowing quite heavily from, especially in the way of codec and things like that, to get it all onto one disc and uh, for install. But, um, yeah, definitely in the last couple of years, it's gone back the other way. Environments, characters, mm-hmm. um, and just simulation in general. Uh, the game world has sort of taken off, hasn't they? And thank God they're playing Absolutely. friendly with... Uh, it's to the point now where I'm, as, a, as, a, as somebody who's working in screen, is seriously considering learning a bit more game engine stuff because it can be really helpful in the creation of mm-hmm. uh, visual effects for yep. film. Yep. 
Yeah, so I think he's fairly spot on there. Um, and more and more of that will happen, and I think more and more the, the lines will blur and people will start slotting into the middle and have all of these interesting experiences that are a bit hard to place, as whether it's this way or that way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I don't know, that's... Especially as we work, move towards VR. Um, as yes, we start definitely. to want to see movies in VR, which you know my feelings on that, I don't think we'll ever successfully mm. see it. I don't think it'll ever take off. Um, but... Um, I'm with you there. That's that's film having to do that. Like the film just doesn't have the solution the way games right now are playing with it. Like I've already given you some examples, like the uh, Assassin's Creed and the um, The Witcher and those sorts of things. They've been doing it. Like you mm. know, for us to want to make films in that environment, we have to take from them because we can't reinvent mm. it. Mm. Uh, I don't know. It's something that I've always been excited to see is that that merger between the two. Mm. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, okay, so I think this one. Well, anyway, I'll let you guys decide. Digital film capture and workflow will become the norm. Not all cinematographers will be ready for this. Um, blah 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 blah. Are we using digital cameras? Uh, <laughs> is this is a trick question. Answer is yes. <laughs> Are we using exclusively and only digital cameras, and nobody uses film anymore? Some people still use film, but it's a fad. It's like going back to practical effects. It's, it's like it's the, we're doing it yeah. because yeah. we want to do it that like way. Like the stop motion yeah. that was yeah. used in Force Awakens on the chessboard. Yeah. Um, they could have done that digitally and it would have looked a lot better, <laughs> yeah, but they yeah. wanted that, you know, clunky stop motion And they thing. could have even done it digitally and make the clunky stop motion yeah, yeah. thing go. Every, every 10 years we've got to throw Dennis <laughs> Muir in a bone and, and let him make some uh, some models. I think I, I read an article was only two days ago that they're using some animatronic stuff in the new... Um, the new Jurassic Park film. Right. So they're right. going back to some animatronic uh, velociraptor head, eye, you know, facial sort of animation. It's one of those novel, those things that the, the filmmakers like Tim Burton will do. They will, they yeah. use their old 35 millimeter film. Yes, because movie. reasons. Like a stop motion feature. But you imagine like even, even. What? A, why the hell are we doing that? Like, why? <sighs> I look at it, it's beautiful. And I think, yeah. oh, what an achievement. Then at the same time, I think. Why are you doing that? Do you not have a life? Somebody's got to keep the art alive. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Even you're if right. you have... Yeah, somebody's got to keep the art alive. What if civilization comes to an end and we don't know how to make <laughs> Velociraptor puppets anymore? <laughs> and I think that's the same reason why people are still shooting on film. They're trying to keep the art alive. Just like yeah. photography. Some people still shoot photography using using film. Yeah. And I'm yeah. not, I've not got a fantastic ear, but yeah. and I couldn't really care I would prefer a, a, a CD or an MP3 over a vinyl record yeah mm. but there's lots of people who are more into music than I am and who vinyl's are more, coming back baby more a lot um, of people buying vinyl yeah, at the moment yeah because they, they like can the hear things that I can't hear they like the crackle there's supposed um, to be something about it let me tell you a, a little anecdote about digital versus film um there were something like 40 photographers in a crowd one day all of them shooting digital except for a handful and Bill Clinton was working his way through this crowd and he was shaking hands with people. And partway through, he stopped and embraced this young woman and then kept moving along and shaking people's hands. He was the president at the time. And um, the only photographer... I did not hug that woman. (laughs) Well, the only photographer that had this, this incriminating photo of him hugging Lewinsky was the guy that was shooting real footage, real film. Okay. Because he had the film. Like, you don't just go ah, okay. delete, 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 delete. Okay. He said, and when they interviewed him, he said, 
there were there were 40 other photographers and i can guarantee all of them got home that day and deleted all of their stuff because space is this <laughs> premium that yeah. you, you know you're paying out the ass for these these you know um drives that go inside these very expensive cameras mm. he said i shoot film so i had it hanging up there mm. and then a year and a half later when mm-hmm. it all came out he just went back to his things and he found this and he sold the picture for like $150,000 because he was the only photographer that had that image. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So there is a time and a place for film. Yeah, true. Yeah, no, I wouldn't suggest that these things should just I think go he's away bang on the money, for, though, with his prediction. I think that's very accurate, right? Yeah. If it's not shot with an, uh, an Alexa nowadays, it's shot with a red. All right. Okay, the next one, and we're up to number 10, so we're almost getting through this. The next one I really like, and um, I didn't think about some of the depth to which he'd thought about this. So, digital distribution will change the way movies are released. Once we had a real network-based digital distribution system where I expect we will see um, patching on the fly much the way software is currently updated on mm. more or less an ongoing basis. No, okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, no, this is what he's saying. So, this is what he's saying. he did work for Lucas at the time. When he <laughs> yeah, wrote, know, when he wrote know, the article, know, he was, know, he was actually working for yeah, Lucas. Yeah, I know. we got to stick a big fucking dinosaur in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Quick, get that out there. But this is what he's saying. You know, yeah. you're very busy and trying to get things done and sometimes you haven't got it as perfective as you wanted to, blah, blah, blah. So let's imagine a world where there's a digital distribution system where the cinema goes on to cinemanetwork.com and they download the latest movie and they put it on their digital projector and everybody watches. Okay. And so, so, so you're talking about distribution to cinemas, not to home. To cinemas, okay, yes, cool. to cinemas. Which I, I believe well, that's it what, might be home as well. I believe that's where what they're doing now. I think yeah, it's what. Well, that is what they're doing for cinemas, there's, but there's still the distribution version of the film. Yeah, and unless you, George Lucas, you don't muck around with that after release. Yeah, unless you're George. And so he's what he's saying is it could be much more like software, where it's like. Did you see the new Star Wars movie? And you can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. I watched Star Wars. The <laughs> I watched new- last week's version. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say, I watched Star Wars, the new shit, version 1.2.1.9.7. It was fucking awesome. Well, I saw version 1.2.9.1.65. Yeah. You should see the amount of dinosaurs they stuck in front of the camera. So, which, is, which is VR. Like, this is one of my problems i got with VR. If you go and make a VR movie, you're not going to see the movie I see. I'm, I'm looking yeah, like, true. I'm over here. I'm looking like that. Yeah, but you're I see over here looking like this. Yeah, but I see that as the strength because it's moving. We can have this argument later. But we can see the same film fifty times. And yes, there's the repeatability. Yeah. Um, so anyway, this is what he's saying, and this is why I thought this was a really novel idea. That yeah, you might get a get a patch to the movie. Mm. Yeah, so there's a comes big problem. Out. There's a big problem with that in terms of storytelling because the the feel of the movie can change. Yeah, and mm-hmm. with the VR, let's go let's go role playing games. Right, there's games like Descent where you have a it's a board game and you play a campaign and you make choices during the game and you have just like with Dungeons and Dragons you have a dungeon master who who leads leads the game and theoretically you can play the same game you know play it over a weekend mm. get to the end and then meet again the next week and play the game again but because you make different choices or because the dice roll slightly differently it's a different kind of game yeah nobody does that though because you know if, yeah, you've played it you've played this version and and the, the small little changes are not worth sitting another whole weekend or yeah. three or four or five days to play through the entire campaign just to experience the few small little changes. Yeah. 
And so in movies, you would have, uh, yes, the version 1.2 and version 1.3, but it would just make the whole story less meaningful. Because yeah. But there it, are people who say, have you seen the new Star Wars movie? And they said, yeah, I saw it five times. I'm going again this Friday. Yeah. It's been the same one over and over and over again. But they're still... Well, they're reliving the original experience. That's why they're saying well, they're they know what's I, I don't imagine that the version 1.6.1 is going to be that much different from they version... They like it. They like it so much. I don't they imagine that they're going to be deleting know. scenes. And, I, I don't know. Well, uh, what, Depends on who's at the helm. Yeah. Who, what, who, who okay, shoots the, first? The, <laughs> true, true. All right. But Lucas is the edge case, yes. right? That's a good example. He is, right? He's a what? Head, head case. Head, what? A little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> he, um, I, I, well, what I saw, you know... He was talking about you re-render a shot. I think is what he's talking about. Is you re-render a shot just to, to, to add a bit of extra sparkle here because, yeah. as he was sort of saying, is like, um, you know, we got so close to the release date and we didn't have all of the stuff that yeah. we wanted and we wanted to... He's so. preaching from the George Lucas playbook. Like, that's exactly the reasoning <laughs> Lucas gave when he tweaked the, the, the original films. Mm. Is, you know, there were things I wanted to do, but the technology wasn't there and blah, 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 blah. Mm. And he worked in 2004. I think you'll... If you check IMDb, he was working for ILM in 2004. Yes, he was, yes. And I could imagine it was... Maybe he's the guy who put Lucas up to it. I think there's a lot of George <laughs> Lucas backslappers that were... That, that were... Had an extra dinosaur charge. <laughs> and it didn't pay to go against the grain. Imagine him writing this article saying that that's a bad thing or leaving that out, mm. having the... You know the the guy in charge of the business you work for um, preaching that that's the future. This is the future of film, and he didn't put it in there. I don't know. Maybe you take this guy aside and he says, "Yeah, I only put that in because I knew George would be reading it." Well, <laughs> well, I'm ambivalent <laughs> yeah. because I reckon yes, there's a very good strong argument to say the movie is the way that it is and it should stay the way Absolutely. that it is. Absolutely, it's a snapshot in mo- time. It's a snapshot in time. But I'm also the guy that likes to get the latest patch and the latest update with the newest thing as well. So then we've got reboots and remakes for that, right? You can't go back and tweak a piece of art like that at your, at your because. You are betraying your audience. You are betraying your audience. Whether they like it or not, you are not being fair. You are you are meddling with the it's thing that like, might be the like a connection. painter. A painter can't yeah. go back into art gallery yeah. and decide look, to, to, to just paint a little bit over can't here after the picture right. has hung Okay, for a few but years. nobody has a problem. Unethical. Well, nobody except you has a problem about it <laughs> when this is that. in the Windows sphere. <laughs> what do you mean? Or a game. Games Nobody cares about it if this is a game. They get the new patch. Oh, yeah, I sweet. think you'll find if we go back into the back catalogue of this very show, you'll see that I care greatly about people meddling yes. with well, the that, game that, that I've fallen in love those with. Those are not story points. You're talking about patches which, which fix bugs. Yeah. And it's not the same as changing the story because you get tired well, you're, of the Well, you're up the one. radical George Lucas end of this argument. <laughs> I'm down the, we needed to render this because we... Yeah. You know, this was a little bit wonky and we could have done a bit of better job to make this look better. I sort of don't argument. mind that. I don't mind, you know, if, if there was a lens flare that stuffed up like I'd love. You'll wouldn't you love to go finish. back into a J.J. Abrams bit dodgy. lens flare keep, movie and take the lens flares out? If you can keep going back and keep polishing, keep polishing and keep polishing, mm. you'll never, ever let it go ever in the eternity of ever. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to say, look, this is Christmas. We're releasing yeah. the sucker and that's it. Done. And I'm convinced if they... if someone hadn't have wrestled the Star Wars franchise from George, he'd still be tweaking that shit. <laughs> he just believed that that was part of the process. Um, I'm, I'm a believer that a film is a snapshot in time and you only get one. Once you release it, that's it. You let it go. You let your baby go out into the world and yeah. how it's perceived is how it's And it's perceived. no longer yours at that point. That's right. Then it's, then it's, it's no longer public, yours at that point. Mind. Okay, that's a good point. 
Leonardo da Vinci was <laughs> was, was fiddling around with the Mona Lisa for like twenty years before it. Well, most not, wasn't no, but he didn't release it and then go really and pull it off the wall. True, and that's what it. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> twenty years he was yeah. fiddling around but with it. He was happy released. with it. He he gave it. And there are director cuts because there's producers who say, "Well, this movie has to release now," and the director isn't happy with it. The yeah. producers go, "Well, we own the rights." And, we, and see, I don't mind that. It. I don't mind director's cuts. And that's fine. That's I think great. that's okay. Yeah. Because I know how things can get corrupted by the machinery and the producers and the wannabe backslapping directors and stuff like that. I, I, I'm, have you ever, if you've ever seen the director's cut of Blade Runner, you'll know you'll straight away agree that director's cuts are in. They should always be in. Mm-hmm. All right. So our verdict does has this come true? Digital distribution. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Tweaking of part. movies afterwards and then no. downloading the new one on Monday morning? Absolutely not. No, that's no. Not, not really a thing. Is and it? I don't think people want that. Yep. Except me. <laughs> <laughs> well, VR's coming for you, mate. You're, Glo- you're okay, laughing. the next one, the next one, um, globalisation of VFX will have an unexpected price. Um, I have mixed feelings about this. I've given um, the cost of a feature film. Um, it's really, he's talking about Outsourcing, uh, outsourcing to wasn't as bad third then. world sweatshops where they already. they slave over pixels, hammering them into shape in yeah. India and China. We were only just starting in, in two thousand and four. That was when already it was, going on back then. But so. it was, but it was, it wasn't widespread. It wasn't widespread, and they were literally sort of setting up a, an office in that country. You mm. know what I mean? Like uh, there'd be a. Um, there'd be an ILM office in Singapore and places mm. like that, you know, that that had cheaper labour conditions and the, stuff like the, that. The throughput capacities of the internet these days and speed certainly make it easier yep. to transfer huge data chunks across the world. Yep. So he's on the... I mean, he, that was happening when he yeah. wrote that article. That was already happening back there. He just sort of said it's going to get... 2004, stronger. I was on Duck Dodgers and the, 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 the creative team were in LA... The animators were in Korea, and we were doing the 3D and the scenes and the, and the environments f- from uh, Australia. I think that that's um, yeah, and, and a sort of an easy prediction in some respects yeah. that most things kind of go that way generally. Mm. Um, I think we've actually pulled back a little bit. I've got a feeling that some of the things that they thought that they could outsource mm, turns out sure. they can't. Not without a lot of training. Things like Roto, they thought that they could just give Roto to anyone. No, mm. you can't. You've, mm-hmm. you've got to have the sensibility of an artist. You have to understand um, 3D depth and composition, and there's a whole bunch of things, narrative and you know focal distance, and there's a bunch of stuff that you need to know. All right, then. So I think you got that one right. So we're coming down to the end here, number 12. This is the last one. VFX, VFX work will change fundamentally from emulation to simulation. The biggest revolution of VFX work will be to change how we go about creating the effects in the first place. Rather than recreating the appearance of things digitally, we will move more and more to be able to recreate the physics of envir- of movement and light, etc. The data will be more powerful, inherently more flexible, since it has three-dimensional information, directors and artists will have the freedom to adjust a single angle, uh, camera angle of shot and move, and move around and stuff. So rather than painting a whirlwind and going, well, there you go, there's a damn whirlwind, you know, he's saying we will create a whirlwind and in, in all of its whirlwindiness yeah. and then we'll be able to put it over here or put it over there or move it down here or make it bigger or taller or shorter or fatter or whatever it is. Yep. yep. And bang on the money. And the... 
one of the biggest um, actual milestones um, has been simulation, mm. uh, especially in the, especially in um, fluids. So yep. fire mm-hmm. is fluidic. Like we we tend to think that fluids are water, liquids. Mm. Um, they're also fire and pyro. Mm. Um, instead of gravity pulling things down in in water. Um, Fuel and heat makes things rise in fire, but the eddies, the vortices, mm-hmm. the uh, um, the fractal shapes and things like that that happen in both, these have been massive inroads. We used to tackle, and I know where he's coming from, we used to tackle these sorts of things as two separate things. We would either have particles that were um, limited to their scope and, and scale, um, single individual particulate, um, and then there were surfaces like oceans and um, mm-hmm. rivers and things like that, which was solid geometry, and we used to fudge it a lot with uh, textures and displacement and bump maps and things like that. Well, now we can drive both through the one simulation process and actually have particles, vorticity, and actually generate mesh that can then be textured. Um, it can act- the, the mesh can actually drive other processes mm. so instead of just layering on creative decisions one on top of the other we can set up one simulation like for instance a fuel a fuel spill or fuel coming out of a flamethrower and from that we get smoke we get mm-hmm. things burning all from the one simulation whereas mm-hmm. in the past that would that was four different processes that we would have to composite onto onto uh, as separate artistic processes uh, it's also physical based, um, you know, shaders, PBR yep. shaders. So instead of painting little white dots on things as specular highlights, Absolutely. they're becoming more and more calculated from where the lights and the reflections are in the scene and all of that type of thing. Absolutely. I think battle, um, Battleship, the water simulations in Battleship are mm. really an indicator of where we've come. Mm. If you want to have a look at some incredible water simulations, mm. um, check out Battleship. It's not much of a film. Um, well, you know, it's a popcorn movie. It's not. Yeah. It's not totally bad, but man, it had some impressive uh, water simulations in it. I mean, we've even gone this kind of way with animations, where mm. um, you can have a whole bunch of animations on a rag doll. Yeah. And when the rag doll gets pushed down the stairs, it falls in a heap, but yeah. it also pulls its arms up to protect its face yeah. as it falls down the stairs. And when it hits the ground, it can do something else that um, is driven by the world around it to cause it to change or. Absolutely. So you've you've, you've done your 12. Yeah. I've got a couple that you didn't mention. So a couple that weren't on his radar. Um, and I would suggest that he's a boffin, right? He's a tech guy. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a pipeline guy. He's a back end. He's a, he's a, um, a technology officer, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and when you drive mm-hmm. a process from the technology, you get to a certain point. It's but when you drive the process from a creative process, you sometimes come to a different point. Yep. And sometimes you cross. Sometimes you reach the point at the same at the same time. Um, so some of the ones I'm about to mention are the uh, are potentially driven by that creative 
process mm-hmm. um, and the need for uh, to, to aid the narrative. So obviously the first one there is, is simulation, is fluid simulations, um, mm-hmm. so water, fire, all that sort of stuff. Um, that has really taken off in the last couple of years. And off the shelf, we mentioned uh, Bifrost earlier, we can just go and buy Meyer and get Bifrost, which is a state-of-the-art fluid simulation. And we can do oceans, we can do rivers, we can even do wine going into a glass at all different uh, scopes, and it, it really works quite well, and, um, and that puts it in the hands of everyone. Another big one that happened along the way is Massive. Now, Massive is, of course, the uh, crowd, crowd simulation. And uh, it was created during the filming of the original uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy. Mm-hmm. And um, I think credited to one very, very intelligent young man mm-hmm. that was at the heart of it. Um, and was he, he was backed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jackson and co looked at it and said, man, if you can make this thing work, tell me what you need. And so they he had a, the assistance of animators and modelers and things like that. Now, Massive, for anyone that doesn't know what it is, is basically a, um, it's a crowd simulation process where you have agents and you pre-animate uh, a bunch of movements, whether they're running, hacking, ducking, um, all the different movements that you would expect the characters in the field, whether it's a battlefield or whatever, that they would do and you put those animations into a database and then you set the agents off and you can weight the agents in favor of certain things. They can be more aggressive, they can be more passive. And then when they come together with a bunch of other agents like soldiers on the other side of the battlefield, they react accordingly. Um, I love seeing stories of how when they did early simulations, they Mm -hmm. were finding agents running in the other direction. And on film, it looks hilarious where 200,000 soldiers come together and they you know come to this big crunch in the middle they're all hacking and whatever and if you look over in the background you can see these agents running off towards the hills <laughs> and they found out that what they were actually doing is they had worked out that the, the best way to get to the enemy or to the goal was to go around the world <laughs> okay yeah. to actually co- go the other way to get to the other side they never obviously reached it but that's what they found that they were doing um it has. It's really come a long way in the last couple of years as far as access off the shelf. Um, there's My Army, um, which people can, you know, plug into Maya and, and start using. I've seen some really great um, uh, crowd simulations with My Army recently. But yeah, in relation to doing massive crowd sequences and have those the members of that crowd really perform in mm. front of the camera mm. in the in the um, the second Lord of the Rings movie, the Two Towers, what's it called? Yes, Is it Two, two Towers. towers? Um, the massive agents were so good that they were they were um, uh, three quarter shots. Like there were there were close ups of of these coming past the camera, mm. and they were literally agents mm. um, animated via a simulation and not hand animated. Obviously, the animation gets hand animated to start with, or captured and then tidied up, and then stuck into the database of movements. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's certainly come a long way, and we see it in TV commercials now. The beer ad, um, I think it's called the beer ad, isn't it? Where the they come together in the field. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Ad. I know that one. Yeah. It was award-winning yep. ad. That that was massive. They were, mm-hmm. they were using massive. Um, when massive first uh, started out, if you wanted a license to use in your studio, it cost. A fortune and part of it was a training regime where you literally had to you had to go and be trained to use it and that was part of the license cost mm. um, now it's 
definitely worth mentioning this one. Color grading. Color grading has changed film. Oh, yeah. In the last, uh, in the new millennium, color grading has massively changed the way we shoot film mm -hmm. and the way we perceive film as an audience. Mm. Um, and famously, uh, if we can see, maybe I have it here. I might not have it here. Um, 2000 film. Oh, brother, where art thou? Is, that's uh, the one uh, I thought I had. Film. So that was already out when he wrote his predictions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he should have probably predicted the, the, how much of an yeah. impact it was going to have on filmmaking because the, the color the color science and the the digital color science and the color grading is now absolutely part of every film that you'll see you yeah. you will never re release a film that is purely a cinematic um or cinematographer's to come straight out of the camera box yeah. yeah yeah um and famously color grading used to be this world <coughs> of <coughs> secret locked doors where mm. in order to get the colors um for color film you would put the film into the emulsion the the chemicals and it was you would time it mm. and it's how long you left it in the various chemicals that gave it the look that you were looking for and no one they wouldn't share that and so it was a master and apprentice sort of deal mm. um unfortunately they would have all gone the way of the dinosaur now because everything is digital digital mm. color graded now um but yeah where brother um uh, brother where right, art thou? Yeah. yeah that was famous because it was shot in the south where everything is lush and green and looks like a rainforest almost and it made it look they made it look dead and desolate and, mm. and uh, lifeless. Mm. So yes, color grading, I, I think, is a massive milestone in the last 10 years. Uh, this is not giving it justice. All the, all the ones on the left look like they've been artificially grayed out and made yeah, look I've, horrible. I've, I've, and <laughs> this, this left and right comparison. This is another example here. In, in the top version, this is the Blu-ray release in the top version. Let me skip through to something that's a little bit easier to... This is the Hollywood blockbuster uh, teal peach... Um, color grade that we're so used to now mm. that we're uh, yes. insiders in the industry we look at that and oh, another one skin colors and everything else is blue if it's not green then yeah basically if it's not bluey green then it's the the teal and i mean they're, they're complementary colors there's a reason why they work but man we're sick of seeing it and then somebody's got into the trouble here with this remastered version down here which i think is just a uh, a fan recoloring of the film and it's stunning I'm, I'm keen to get my hands on this agent nine color correction man of steel remastered fan edit mm. because look at it have a look at the difference when we get to some of these um human scenes look at this they they, they look sick up here don't mm. they down here they actually look like humans like the skin is actual flesh uh, but yes color correction can color correction color grading can actually work against you if you are a slave to the the big studio, in some ways, this sort of I'm just still thinking about the predictions from um, from what we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, off the shelf tools. You've got a fan edit who's recolor graded yeah. the film. Yeah, probably Da Vinci Resolve or some plugin uh, that would cost him a couple of hundred. Some some dude has just done it and he's in his yeah. garage or whatever. The other thing is that what what did he use as the as the basis to color grade off of? It wouldn't have been a thirty two bit high dynamic range footage anymore. No, but there's there's things that we can t copy LUTs from, so we can just we yes. Can but once once the comp footage is compressed, if he's working off a of Blu ray, there is the, the the color information isn't there in the blown out whites anymore to bring anything. It's still going to be there. Back. It's value. It's have you seen colored black and whites? It's the same thing. It's value. As long as you can find the value, 
then you tell the tell it that that value is this, um, and and because it's it is color and not black and white, it's not pure val- um, luminance value. You can get pretty close. Mm. Absolutely, mm. you can certainly strip out this bluey teal orange thing. Yes, you can. You can do that, but you can't. And then you introduce it back. You in. can't make stuff that isn't there. A lot of stuff at the end of the color grading process. A lot of stuff gets clipped mm. and once that's gone that's gone no you're right and I think if you did watch this you would start Can't to see some anomalies especially we like to push our blacks these days to get a lot of contrast into the shot and once the contrast is in there and you see that in the comparisons the contrast it's, it's yeah, impressive yeah, man he's pulled some back yeah, yeah. whatever he's done um, it's impressive I, I really mm. I really think um, yeah but I mean when you think about it it is all there like it's it, it, the there's nothing you can tell. There's a bit of that that uh, burgundy in the hat. You can probably bring that out. There's all the colours are there. They've just contaminated with something. What he's done is removed the contamination and then brought it back up, uh, brought the saturation back up. Mm-hmm. I'd love to try it as an experiment. You because I've never tried this. I've never tried to rip out that that bluey teal and then try to come back to this. That's um, that's a little experiment. We can try that. Um, okay, we we've talked about mocap. This is iMocap. Where did I put it? Here it is. Now, iMocap is motion capture on the set with the real actors acting off people walking around in these iMocap suits. Mm-hmm. Now, iMo- the way iMocap works is um, there are three cameras, the witness cameras. Mm-hmm. So you've got your main camera and then you've got these witness cameras. Mm-hmm. Now, they triangulate the points on the suits that they're wearing using the witness cameras and as long as you can track these markers you can tell you can tell the system that that point on his shoulder from that camera is that point on his shoulder from that camera Mm -hmm, and you mm -hmm. triangulate that way once you've done that triangulation you get the motion capture in the shot the beauty of this is you're not filming on a green screen or sorry not filming on a void um, a capture void a volume you're you're um, filming on the set and yeah. so people are reacting to real. He's holding real cables. He's mm. he's standing on the decks, and more importantly, the other actors can act straight to mm. this this thing. And I think the Davy Jones um, character is a real milestone on on set motion capture uh, using this uh, proprietary uh, solution by ILM mm. um, iMocap. Mm. They used it for Iron Man as well. So you might have seen Iron Man getting around in his. Uh, in his suit. There we go. So basically they're acting off one another and that capture is exactly what got put into the act. And because the suits they're wearing in the bottom version here, that's all purely digital. Yeah, yeah. So um, once again, the same system. So iMocap um, is a big leap forward. Now, I can't understand why it's not used as, as much as it like it's I don't see it very often it was quite hard for me to find reference mm-hmm. videos mm-hmm. even though Davy Jones was quite a few years ago I'm not seeing a lot of reference and I don't know why mm-hmm. maybe there's some technical problems with it maybe it's laborious maybe there's a lot of labor involved you know I think it probably is very laborious and it pays off when you have actors that really need to be interacting with one another where you have famous actors that you can't just replace with a with a with a CG mm. but whenever you do something like avatar or somewhere where you have digital models that fully replace them um yeah maybe it's not so, so and important. notice there's a similarity all we see is his face you need the faces here yes and 
with David Jones, they kept his eyes, even though I think they're quite proudly boasting that they end up removing his eyes and everything is CG in the film. Mm-hmm. But they they initially wanted to keep his eyes. That's why he's in makeup mm-hmm. uh, in here, and they mm-hmm. tracked his tracked his face so that they could map it in. So that you might be right. You might be you know you really have to have a need to use this tech mm. um, to go that direction. Um, because it is so much easier to just build, yeah. go into a shooting stage, a mocap stage, and shoot there where you don't have to build a set. Absolutely. So just two more. This is second to last. And this is virtual camera, which is real-time virtual camera. Now, this has taken a huge step recently. Um, James Cameron famously takes credit <clears throat> for being the first director to... Uh, he, he takes credit for developing it mm. um, on Avatar. Mm. Which is after the Lord of the Rings. Well, the problem is I've seen the behind the scenes for Lord of the Rings, which is a good six years before. Yeah. Mm. And Peter Jackson is doing it'll it in be, the cave troll. But that might be little baby steps in the yeah, development. Yeah, yeah, that might have just been a cool gimmick that they had, yeah. you know. Yeah. And It's the same company, both Weta. Yeah. Mm. I don't know. But anyway, what we're seeing now is the ability to take a, um, um, to take a viewer... Uh, whether that be a virtual viewer that you put on your head mm. um, and then have a camera that has tracking markers on it and in the void, the camera position is tracked, fed into a computer system and then what the camera, the virtual camera is seeing is shown on your monitor. Mm-hmm. So it's effectively a virtual camera that is filming in real time that allows you to actually film, um, to, to show you what you're actually filming in real time, including characters yep. that are in the scene uh, in motion capture suits and real-world characters that might be in the scene as well, mm. in a in a sort of a um, augmented reality style. That's a big uh, that's a big play, especially in pre-visualization. So when we come to pre-vis, having that ability is a pretty impressive uh, tool set, real time. And it's very, um, you know, again, it's just the sort of merger of games and and screens. What I see is this the the virtual world is just a big smoosh together of all three of those things Absolutely. whether used as the final product or used for the production of the final product and so often we see um, digital cinematography when somebody is just animating an object in 3d mm. which is happens to be the camera there's no adherence to the, the laws of nature with camera work like the weight mm. of a camera like the weight of dolly and and crane and things like that and the mm. fact that there's a limit to the arc, you know. There's um, this actually allows, like, it forces you to have real-world cameras. It mm. forces you. Uh, they use these camera systems for uh, World of Warcraft, and I think very successfully. Mm. Full CG environments, full CG characters being captured in the void with um, handheld cameras, and it's stunning to look at. It brings an extra um, uh, level of realism. Now, the big one for me. And this, we're only just tip of the iceberg here. We've only just seen this um, used successfully. Is this one. The light box. Mm. Now, in Gravity, they quite literally stuck the actors inside this big, um, this big box of... Uh, LEDs. Ba- basically, they were LEDs. And the LEDs are tied into a system allowing you to pre, uh, to present uh, pixel data through the LEDs bright enough to actually light the characters. So when Sandra Bullock is floating in space and she's, she's floating around and we see the Earth to her right and the Sun to her left, the Earth and the Sun were actually being shown on these LEDs and therefore lighting her from the real thing. Mm. Um, 
and also all the reflection data and all of the um, shadow data and everything is absolutely accurate. Now, of course, you can only do this if you go and shoot the film first and then reshoot it with the actors afterwards. It's a weird thing, Which they it? actually did. It's like taking image-based lighting, which you would take image-based lighting to light 3D objects, yep. but now it's just bringing it full circle yeah. and using it to go back, feedback loop in to light the actual real practical effects. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so it's actually putting somebody inside the TV screen. Yeah. It's putting somebody physically, it's almost like the Matrix, putting somebody actually into the... Um, you know, into the shot, really, it's is what the, it is. What the, the camera, um, oh, I've lost the term, the computerised camera, repeated camera motion. Motion control. Motion control. Essentially, it's a motion control system for light. Mm. Um, and, and that means it can be repeated over and over again. Mm. And so if the, you're not happy with the performance, just play again and play, play the video, video again, again. Yeah. and you can also tie that into motion control rigs on the characters that, that she's she's in a harness right mm. now that harness is tied into the same system that is driving the lighting so I'm I'm literally telling you that they made the film mm. they, they create he created this entire film in 3d mm. he could have released it as a 3d animated yeah, film yeah yeah and it was rendered at extremely high res and quality. And I'm not just talking previews. I'm t I mean, he made the film. Mm. That's how you can get away. What was the longest shot? What was the opening shot? 16 minutes. 16 minutes long. Mm. The only way you can do that is if you previs the shit out of it. And in that 16 minutes was the destruction scene and the, you know, people dying mm. and flinging around and her panicking and all that. The whole thing is all the one shot. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yes, for me, this light... Um, the the light box is early days but i think that we're going to see a lot more of that in relation to and and it's stepping back out into the reality mm -hmm. instead of pulling us into that virtual world so much having said that the only thing that was real rendered was her face you know everything else got replaced it is an interesting uh, way to think about moving back to practical effects you know mm. but it's not a rubber dinosaur it's a uh it's taken. It's just taken it into a completely different direction. Yeah, yeah. It's very innovative, really, when you think about it, isn't it? Have you seen? We'll, we'll just end on this. Oblivion um, projection lighting. In Oblivion, they made the mother of all sound stages with projected panels. Check this out. Um, so they've got the sound stage. Um, here, you know how in Oblivion they're on this platform which is up in, mm. uh, in you know, mm -hmm. tens of thousands of feet up in the sky. Well, what they did is they surrounded the whole thing with projection screens, mm. um, rear projection or front projection, I'm not too sure. But what they did is they went to a mountain in Honolulu mm. um, in Hawaii and they filmed full 360 panoramas and then they broke them into sections and stitched them back together once they got in here. So there are shots in the actual film that are, see if we can, this is, this is the grid, right? And so they stitch together the grid again. And then in the actual film, we see shots where it's projected. Where is it? Here we go. So this is, that's in the actual film. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so that's not green screen back there. That's, yeah. 
that's actual uh, and f- as far as green screen is concerned they could project green on it as well if they wanted yeah. to yeah. and actually do green screen replacement as well would have been incredibly expensive the Matt thing you painting get 2.0 because they knew it was all going to be shiny bling chrome glass whatever they wanted uh, to have real realistic reflections and all this sort of stuff yeah. and someone came up with the idea and it worked an absolute treat you got this sort of stuff here um, and it worked really well. So that's, once again, a similar thing where we're going back to mm. uh, something that's a real-world solution and not um, pure mm. digital. A reinvention of the real-world solution. Coming away from that digital backlot that we mentioned earlier. Mm. So what do we think, uh, gentlemen, in relation to our prediction list? He got it. We didn't keep score, did we? He, he didn't really right. keep score, but he, he got more right than he got wrong, that's, that's for sure. Absolutely. Um, the only thing that I think we didn't... Um, Virtual humans, yeah, mm-hmm. give him a tick. So we'll just go through the 12 we might end after Believable that. virtual humans? Believable virtual humans, believable face animation. From far away. I say yes, facial animation, but not um, believable human rendering. But we're pretty damn close. Um, massive environments, yeah. Mm-hmm. Standard, standardized pipeline tools, eh, not that no. easy to say yes to I that say one. No. I say no. Um um, yeah, advancing um, VFX um, as as opposed to physical. Well, we've sort of seen here from what you showed that there's more than one interpretation of that. Mm-hmm. But um, yes, definitely. Um, offsite rendering, mm, maybe not. Um, GPU power up, yep. Um, movie game stuff smooshing together, yep, yep. Number nine, digital capture workflow becoming the norm, mm-hmm. yep. Uh, number 10, um, digital distribution will change the way movies are released. Mm. Well, we definitely digital distri- distribution, but some of the other fancy things that he was talking about probably mm-hmm. haven't happened. Yep. Globalization. Yeah, that's a thing. Yep. Uh, and the emulation, uh, the simulation rather than emulation. Yep. Yeah, we're definitely doing Absolutely. that. Massive, you Absolutely. Massive, everything. And it's dry. one simulation drives all these other yeah. things. Absolutely. All right, so let's finish on this. Mm-hmm. In the next 10 years, what do you think will be a surefire prediction in, in our world of visual effects, in digital visual effects and um, digital filmmaking, anything relating to film and the creation of film um, in the next 10 years? I'll, I'll go first and I will tell you um, and it's probably not so much the making of film, I will tell you that in the next 10 years, we may see the death of a cinema. <laughs> yes. As we know it. Yeah, as yeah. we know it. You're potentially correct. The same way as the, the drive-in. It might become something else. It might become a VR space where you go and there are 400 headsets with in special things. We've, we've spoken about VR before. It's a way of forcing people to look this way. Mm. If you put them all in a big room, stick a headset on there, they still get the 3D stuff. But I don't know. For me, I see the death of the cinema. Okay, put that one down. Mine is um, VR will be something. It's <laughs> <laughs> my prediction. I want to see. I think you might be right. VR will tef- definitely. Yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. The, uh, it's the compelling. Has That's very compelling. Long dying. Mm. It's long and slow death. So it's, it's it's been coming. I mean, you just walk. You walk into a movie on, on premiere night and yeah. you see that only half the seats are taken. Yeah. When they've got 4D, when they're trying to sell it to us, it's got smell-o-vision yeah. and they squirt you with water, which they're doing. Yeah, but I'll just yeah. get down to That's K- the throes K- of a desperate reality. Yeah, I'll just get no, it's K- all been going on for. Of- that sort of stuff has been going on for decades as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, cinema, I think we'll still be going to the movies mm-hmm. in 10 years' time yeah. because it's a social event. 
Well, we're and not I very social. Drive-in was have... a social event. Yeah. No, it's the, the meeting with friends before and having dinner before you go to the, the drive-in stand. was a social <laughs> event. As a race, I think we're getting less and less social. Yeah, we don't need that. We've we got, do. This is our social. We've got digital social. Thank you very much. <laughs> I worry. Yeah. I worry about the event that is the cinema. I All think right. I have, have too, much, too high hopes and quality. People are just happy to download something and watch it on 720. Oh, well, quality on the laptop is better than anything I've ever had on television. Yeah. So, yeah. I certainly want to see movies to become interactive. I would love to be fully immersed into a film, not, not, not having anything around me, just but being the story there. Yeah. Fully in there with a choice. Yeah. So you're talking VR. I'm talking probably more than VR. It's I'm the talking game about VR. Oh, it's mix. sort of a game VR. Mix so you're talking cinematic I'm, game. Where I'm sort of with, in a, with there. a predetermined narrative. I've I'm always to, thought. Well, yeah, predetermined narrative. I'm happy to sit there and watch the action, mm. but I want to be in there and I want to be yeah. able to stand inside. You want the to choose your own time. adventure? Yeah. No, 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 but no. I just no he's talking about choose your own vantage point. I want to oh, watch I've Dan. I want to be an onside voyeur. I've always wanted the. Where you can do your own damn cinematography. Thank you very much. You just get the raw movie. The actors move around, yeah. and you can be the camera and you can put it wherever you want. Well, that's VR then. Yeah. You just sort of sit yeah. there and watch whatever area you want to. But more than VR, because in VR you're sort of locally yeah. pinpointed. Down. I will tell you that it might not happen in the next ten years, but it will happen in our lifetime. And that will be a new art. Form. And I couldn't say that ten years ago. That will be mm. a new art form. It won't be games. It won't be screen. It won't be a film. It'll be a an experience a dot 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 experience I've VR. said before VR mm-hmm. the future of VR is an experience it's not in a narrative um, it's not in cinema the way we know it it's an experience yes and when you want to experience something whether that's floating in the space or down in, under the water or on another planet it's going to really excel in that mm. and then the ability to see that from your vantage point from the mm. one you know whether you want to be a fly on the wall or right up close and personal or whatever that way you can see experience it so many different ways that's what's going to make it viral. That's it's going to really take off. But I don't know whether they'll know. do it in 10, 10 years or whether... But I, they will do it in our lifetime. I agree. Yeah. That's what I call VR. What you can't ever doing. predict is how people react to it, whether it takes off or not. Yeah. You can predict a lot of things, but... Yeah. All I know is they're spending big dollars on it. Yeah, you might, nobody nobody it. will ever be interested. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. Look at how it's exploded in the last couple of years. All right, gentlemen. That's our show. That's uh, that's a look at visual effects and where it was supposed to go and where it ended up going um, from the perspective of a, a, a very switched-on gentleman in the industry uh, that was right at the coalface, shall we say, of the visual effects world. Definitely true. Um, and so, hopefully, you've uh, you've found that as uh, as interesting as we have as a retro as a, as a look back uh, as a way to look forward. Um, so that's it for another for another show. Um, any parting words, gentlemen, uh, before we leave? Elite Dangerous has got some new cameras in their computer game. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have a look at that in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, a whole new camera system in their computer. Dan can game. hardly Staging contain stuff. his uh, <laughs> can hardly contain his excitement. Wasn't uh, that your first show? Possibly, yeah. yeah it could so. have been, yes. And our biggest bugbear was that Elite Dangerous does not give us the ability to uh, to bring our cinematography chops to, to make to some their cool videos. their beautiful artwork that they provide to anyone. Absolutely. Anyway, yeah, that's yep. what I'm thinking about. And uh, they released a beta. Um, we can go and sign up to the beta right now and be the commanders and actually we can all be on the bridge of the one ship and, mm. and fly away. That's right now mm. and I think the camera system is part of that as well mm. so that'll be a proper release and so we'll definitely cover that be a good show to come in the future 
Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We'll have a look at that. Okay, so that's it for another uh, another week, and hopefully we'll be back next week instead of in another two weeks due to our technical uh, technical problems. Um, Very good. Okay. So from uh, Tom McGill, Dan Miller, Dave Scotland, bye for now. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.